Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. When G.I. Joe hit my town. It was like a tidal wave. All of my friends got into collecting the figures. We also got into the comic books. But then we heard that G.I. Joe was going to be a cartoon. This was above and beyond what we expected. And the anticipation leading up to the release of that cartoon was intense. We would discuss which of our characters were going to be on it. We would speculate as to what it might be like. And when it was finally released, we treated it like an event. We all got together to watch it the first time, and when the theme song came on, we were all giddy, and not one person left that TV the entire time it was on. For a good solid few months afterwards, G.I. Joe was appointment television amongst my friends, and we often tried to watch it together, and that meant that my closest friends came over to my house to watch it. And then afterwards, we would abandon everything else to go play G.I. Joe, while it was still all fresh in our mind. G.I. Joe saturated our lives in the same way that Star Wars had just a few years earlier. But what's interesting about the G.I. Joe phenomenon is that it was completely manufactured. Star Wars kind of came out of nowhere at first, but G.I. Joe had a plan, and they marched forward releasing figures, comics, cartoons, and then a host of accessories, tents, and toothbrushes. Anything they could put G.I. Joe on, they did, and we gobbled it up. And while the toys would be central to how we engaged communally with G.I. Joe, the animated series was a close second. And sometimes the animated series would easily take precedent, and we knew this because we would reenact the episode we just saw with our figures. Our imagination took a backseat to what they had shown us, and we felt it was much more compelling to act that out, which of course would lead us to act out the show itself in real life with each of us playing a role, which wasn't easy because at most there was only three or four of us, but it was still fun to do some play acting. On today's show, I'm going to talk to you about the G.I. Joe animated series, one of the jewels in the 1980s G.I. Joe crown. We'll talk about the people behind the camera, who helped make the show. We'll talk about the voice talent on the show. We'll talk about the main series, the follow-up series, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, was the name of a half-hour animated television series that ran in the United States 
in the UK, it was known as Action Force, and it was based on the Hasbro toy line G.I. Joe. Now, in the past, there had been merchandising tie-ins for toys, but G.I. Joe was probably the most well-rounded in that they just didn't release a show and a toy. They had the toy line, a comic book series, then two separate animated series, and then ones that would go on further. But they also had video games and books and then consumer products that you could buy in the store like band-aids and toothbrushes. G.I. Joe was front and center and for 20-something minutes every week, sometimes every day when this thing ran in syndication, you could get your G.I. Joe fix and then want to run out to get all of the other stuff. G.I. Joe had existed before the 80s, quite successful, but the relaunch and the scope of it really took off as a result of a relationship between Hasbro and Marvel Comics. Hasbro and Marvel got together, and it was one of their editors, Larry Hama, who would really flesh out this universe. And while he had nothing to do with the animated series, his characters and the personalities he gave them would often show up there. Now, I talked about this in two previous shows, but I just want to reiterate, Marvel brought a lot to the table. And one of the main things is, besides what Larry Hama did, Marvel editor Archie Goodwin came up with the idea to create Cobra so that they would have an enemy. They also suggested that G.I. Joe not just be the name of one guy, but the name of the entire military unit, and that in that unit would be all of these specialists with their own names, their own traits, all of which were provided by Hama. And this would open up a ton of play opportunities for kids. It would also serve a cartoon really well. In effect, during this creative process, this new version of G.I. Joe was born and just ready to spill out onto the world. Marvel was a comic studio, and they had done some animation in the past, but to create a cartoon of this size and magnitude, they needed to engage with other companies. Chiefly, Sunbow was the co-production partner. Sunbow's staff would actually write the scripts based on the characters and, of course, the vehicles that Hasbro would give to them. And then the artists at Marvel would draw storyboards and record the voiceovers for the show. The animation itself would be outsourced to another company, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, Toei. But let's talk a little bit about Sunbow Entertainment. Sunbow was an American animation studio. It was founded in 1980, and it was owned until 1998 by Griffin Bacall Advertising in New York City. Griffin Bacall's first animation started for the G.I. Joe toy line, and the success of that led its partners, Griffin and Bacall, Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall, to form Sunbow Productions. They would work very closely with Hasbro over the years, being almost recognized as an unofficial part of Hasbro, their television branch. The 80s are filled with their work, most of it done in co-production with Marvel. They produced shows that you would recognize, The Great Space Coaster, which they co-produced with Metro Media Television, Visionaries, The Knights of Magical Light, The Transformers, Conan the Adventurer and Conan the Young Warriors, My Little Pony Tales, and they also produced multiple theatrical films, My Little Pony, Transformers, Inhumanoids, really good, and of course G.I. Joe the movie. The animation itself was done by Toei. Toei Animation is a Japanese animation studio. It has produced innumerable animated series, some more well-known than others, things like Sailor Moon, Digimon, G.I. Joe, 
the Transformers, Dragon Ball, the Snorks, Dungeons and Dragons, Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears, Muppet Babies, the list goes on and on and on. All the big studios engaged with them, including Disney, Sunbow, Marvel, Hanna-Barbera, Rankin-Bass, Deke. Basically, if you're watching animated shows in the 80s, you probably saw something produced by Toei. While the comic book and the action figures were fleshed out by Larry Hama, as I said, he had nothing to do with the animated series. In fact, he's quoted as saying that he never actually has seen an entire episode of the show. But they did have another strong creative power behind the animated series, Ron Friedman. Ron Friedman was born in 1932. He's a television and film producer and writer. And while he has a host of credits, he's probably best known to modern audiences for his work on the Transformers and G.I. Joe. His list of credits is outstanding. He has written over 700 hours of television episodes that have made it to air, including classic shows like Gilligan's Island, Bewitched, All in the Family, The Odd Couple, Happy Days, and The Andy Griffith Show. He doesn't get really enough credit for his animation work, even though more people will talk about it, because he created and developed not only G.I. Joe, but the Transformers for American television. And for his work, he was nominated for multiple Emmys and won several Writers Guild of America awards. So how does a basically 20-plus minute commercial for a toy line make it onto the air when there had been regulations against such things in the past? Now, up until the 80s, there were regulations about what you could show on TV to kids. Things couldn't be just a long commercial for toys. That would change when Ronald Reagan, who was the president in the 1980s, appointed Mark Fowler as FCC chairman in 1981. Regulations that had been in place to protect children, one being a seven-second limit on showing animation in advertising, were taken away. And in 1984, the FCC said that program-length commercials, animated series, about these toys were okay. And so the G.I. Joe was no longer limited to just an animated commercial. This entire franchise could have its own cartoon. Now, there were limitations to what you could do on TV that was very different than what you could do in a comic book. And you got to give Friedman a lot of credit for having to work within the bounds of this. There was a no-death edict, meaning you could not show people dying on screen. And you won't even see serious injuries. When planes blow up, you'll notice people are parachuting out. Characters don't even use actual firearms. There's no bullets. Instead, it's lasers, famously red lasers for the Joes and blue for Cobra. Another interesting twist is that because it's an advertisement for a toy, you would have to keep the character looking just like the toy all the time. So if the figure wore a cowboy hat or a bodysuit and they were going to jump into a plane and fly it, now a normal pilot would put on a flight suit. But no, you had to have the person in their ninja outfit flying the plane. I never, as a child, noticed that at all. Didn't even occur to me. As an adult, I see it. But as a kid, it made complete sense to me. Very soon, the whole world will see the power of Cobra. G.I. Joe, American hero. G.I. Joe is there. Ouch. 
Joe's coming at you with more action and more adventure than ever before. Coming at you five days a week, fighting for freedom against the evil forces of Cobra. Don't miss it. Today at 3.30. Come on over where the fun is, TV 53. Now, I've said that the comic and the animated series didn't have a lot in common, but they did have a few things. For example, the town of Springfield, the character of the Baroness that was introduced in the comics, and the October Guard. But beyond that, things changed dramatically, and continuity did not match up. The comic does have some sci-fi elements, but is very grounded in realism, but the cartoons themselves go crazy, and they have fantasy elements that are just a lot of fun, in a different way than the comic book. I will say this, when my friends and I played, we tended to prefer the realism of the comic book for our characterizations and play style. While the animated series could not show death, they did manage to cleverly put it into the show in an episode in season one, for example. And this is an interesting way to show death. The Joes are transported to an alternate universe, and they see the skeletal remains of characters who died in that universe. So a clever way to show death in a different world, to show that all this violence can have consequences. But we did learn about consequences from G.I. Joe. I just want to take a moment to talk about the public safety lessons. Let me just play one to begin with. Look, the storm knocked down that big wire. Hey, let's jump our bikes over it. Now, we better move it off the road. No, you better leave that power line right where it is. There's enough electricity there to fry an elephant. We didn't think it was dangerous. You'd have found out too late. Remember, never play around electrical wires or you could be playing with fire. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! At the end of each episode, you would get one of those. Each one of them would show a dangerous scenario, and then a G.I. Joe character would come in to impart wisdom. And of course, these little segments kind of took off, and their catchphrase, now we know, and knowing is half the battle, took on a life of their own and are very well remembered, maybe more so than a lot of the other parts of the animated series. The cartoon premiered in September of 1983 as a five-part miniseries, G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. It would air on 122 stations throughout the United States. It would be broadcast on Saturday mornings, and it was so well-received that it would beat out the three major networks. They would then run another miniseries in 1984, which would lead to the regular series of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, which began on September 16, 1985, and would run for 95 episodes over two seasons. The show had an incredible cast of voice actors. Dozens of people provided voices for the characters. It would take forever to go through this list, but you should just do a quick search and look. It's just filled with recognizable names if you're into following voice actors. People like Michael Bell, Corey Burton, Peter Cullen, Pat Fraley, Dick Gautier, Chuck McCann, B.J. Ward. The list goes on and on and on. A notable voice on the show is the narrator. And we'll talk a little bit about him. That narrator was voiced by Jackson Beck. Beck was born in 1912, passed away in 2004. And up until G.I. Joe, he was well known as the announcer on radio's The Adventures of Superman. He also voiced Bluto in the early theatrical shorts of Popeye. His voice was very 
recognizable. If you watched TV in the 70s and 80s, and if you happened to own a radio before that, you were probably familiar with his work. During a struggle between G.I. Joe and Cobra, an accident triggers an experimental weapon. The Joes are plunged into unconsciousness, and when they awaken, the explosion has hurled them into an alternate reality, where some things are identical to our world, while others, like the disease-bearing insect that stings Steeler, are very, very different. Music on the show was provided by Robert J. Walsh and Johnny Douglas. Robert Walsh passed away in 2018, worked with a great number of very talented people, including Jim Henson, Bert I. Gordon, Glenn Larson, worked on projects like G.I. Joe, Transformers, Gem, Inhumanoids, Muppet Babies, and the 1993 film classic Leprechaun. In 1979, he was the musical conductor and director at Warner Brothers Animation, so a pretty good start to a career working with people like Frizz Freeling. And it was the 80s Looney Tunes, so maybe not the best Looney Tunes, but still working on the Looney Tunes. Johnny Douglas was an English composer. He passed away in 2003. He's actually most well-known for his work in the easy listening genre of music. But he would write the soundtrack to 38 feature films and a bunch of television series, including Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Dungeons & Dragons, The Incredible Hulk, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. If you like the music from G.I. Joe, Hasbro did release a music from the G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero LP, was available on vinyl. But you can also purchase it online. I have listened to it, and it sounds great. Really brings you back to the show. And it includes over 40 minutes of unreleased music from Robert Walsh and Johnny Douglas. A good track to note is the instrumental version of the theme song. Good stuff. So G.I. Joe, the animated series, is doing well. In fact, a lot of the things that Hasbro is doing are doing pretty well on TV, which means that they're going to try to make an attempt to go to the big screen. And G.I. Joe the movie, which was a feature-length version of the series, was supposed to get a large theatrical release following the release of another animated series that made it to the big screen, Transformers the movie. G.I. Joe would have been released first, but there were production delays, and that allowed Transformers to be released first. And Despite being well-remembered today, it didn't do very well at the box office in the way they hoped. The same thing happened with My Little Pony. And because of this, G.I. Joe was pushed to -to direct-to-video status, which happened on April 20th, 1987. It would later be split into a five-part miniseries that would be shown on television. That movie follows up on the events of season two and introduces a couple of new concepts, including Cobra La a secret civilization, and new sub-teams. We learn more about the inspiration for the creation of Serpentor, and we're introduced to the Rawhides and the Renegades, which were characters that were introduced in the 1987 toy lineup. We can talk a lot about G.I. Joe the movie, but maybe we'll cover that in a future episode. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans! This is Metagirl, bringing you the top five episodes from the animated series G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. At number five is season two, episode 24, Nightmare Assault. 
Dr. Mindbender creates the Sombulator, a device that allows him to use sombulatory psychic waves to trigger nightmares in the Joes. The hope is to affect the crew's morale and mental stability during their waking hours, rendering them vulnerable to Cobra attacks. Lowlight, who is accustomed to nightly nightmares, is the only person who can help his friends overcome their fears and foil Mindbender's evil plot. Number four is a season one two-parter, episodes 36 and 37, Worlds Without End. The Joes and Cobra battle over an experimental weapon that can transform matter into any other substance. After accidentally activating the device, a team of Joes is transported to an alternate reality where Cobra has apparently defeated the Joes. We learn that Cobra might be in control, but there's dissension within its ranks. The Joes find an unexpected ally in the Baroness. With her help, Steeler, Clutch, and the others search for a way back to their own reality. But Cobra is closing in. Can the Joes make it home, or must the righteous fight continue in this alternate world? Number three is Season 1, Episode 45, Memories of Mara. While on a Joe mission to locate the USS Nurka, a downed nuclear sub, Shipwreck rescues a blue-skinned woman in a cobra diving suit named Mara. Mara was one of the first water-breathing human-fish hybrids created by Cobra as part of a scheme to deploy amphibious troops. Shipwreck and Mara fall in love, but their relationship is doomed since Cobra's medical manipulation murdered the military mermaid's ability to breathe outside of water for more than a few minutes at a time. At number two is another season one two-parter, episodes 54 and 55, There's No Place Like Springfield. Shipwreck and Lady J meet with Professor Mullaney, who developed a formula that can turn any water source into a bomb. Cobra knows a portion of the formula, but Mullaney imprints the entire formula directly into Shipwreck's brain. The formula can only be retrieved with a password entrusted to Lady J and, inadvertently, to Polly the Parrot. Hoping to extract the secret weapons formula implanted in Shipwreck's mind, Cobra manages to covertly capture the Joe, placing him under surveillance in a mock town populated by synthoid duplicates of his friends and family. Shipwreck is pushed to the brink of insanity before realizing that he has been ensnared in an elaborate ruse. In the end, with Polly's help, Shipwreck destroys the Cobra base and along with it, his dreams of a loving family. And the number one episode of G.I. Joe is Season 1, Episode 51, Cold Slither. After a raid on one of his vaults, Cobra Commander discovers that he is bankrupt. Operation Cold Slither is devised to soothe his creditors. Cold Slither is a raucous heavy metal band fronted by Zartan and the Dreadnoughts. They record a video to which Destro adds subliminal commands that lure anyone who sees the video, including Shipwreck, Footloose, and Breaker, to a Cold Slither benefit concert where the audience is held for ransom, thus benefiting Cobra and solving his solvency situation. Fun fact, Cold Slither's eponymous hit song can be heard in four episodes of the Transformers cartoon, which, like G.I. Joe, was a co-production of Sunbow and Marvel. And there you have it, the retroist top five episodes from the G.I. Joe animated series. Until next time, list fans, this has been Metagirl. Around 1986 is when G.I. Joe's popularity really peaked. That might be attributed to other phenomenons that had crept in, including four martial arts turtles that you might be familiar with. Whatever the cause, sales started going down. And then the real champion of G.I. Joe, Stephen Hassenfeld of 
Hasbro, passed away unexpectedly in 1989. In 1991, Hasbro would acquire Kenner, who produced the Star Wars toys. And at that point, the writing was on the wall for all things G.I. Joe. Now, at this point, there was supposed to be a third season. But since things were starting to go downhill, they decided to not invest in it. Marvel would continue to produce commercials for the toy line and comic books, all in anticipation of this third season. But they never would produce that third season because it would lose its license to do so to a competing animation studio, Deke. Now, what we know about what would have been in the Sunbow Marvel version of G.I. Joe are quite different than what we would get in the follow-up series from Deke. Michael Charles Hill, who wrote a bunch of episodes of the show, had proposed an outline for season three that would have introduced a criminal organization called The Coil, a nice take on snake stuff, and it would have had a bunch of new Cobra elites, which would have been led by Tomax and Zamot, the evil twins, and it would have served as a new enemy faction. So you would have G.I. Joe, you would have Coil, you would have Cobra, and then in the middle you would have actually had Cobra Commander, who would have these sort of shifting loyalties as he tried to take back his organization. We would have no G.I. Joe for a bit, and then in 1989 we would get a new series from Deke that would run till 1991. And it also started with a five-part miniseries that was called Operation Dragonfire. Now, it would be a continuation of the Sunbow series, but it wouldn't use that season three storyline with the coil that I talked about. Things would change from Sunbow to Deke. The animation style gets kind of jerkier and more unrealistic, just not as good looking. And there is a lot less details and a lighter color palette. But the characters were largely the same. They would change the theme song a bit. They would change it from a real American hero to international heroes. And Cobra the enemy became a ruthless enemy. But in a lot of ways, still the same. In total, there would be two seasons of this Deke show. They would pick up on some things from the comic book that were interesting, which made it a little bit more fun. For example, Storm Shadow's defection to G.I. Joe, which was only in the comic, would be brought up in the second season of the Deke series. So there are some interesting things that happen in the Deke version. Sumba would return to the G.I. Joe franchise, co-producing the 1994 straight-to-video Sergeant Savage and his Screaming Eagles and the G.I. Joe Extreme TV series because it's the 90s and things need to be extreme, which aired from 1995 to 1996. The good thing about G.I. Joe in the 80s is that it was on TV all the time, so you didn't feel like you needed to rush out and get all of G.I. Joe on VHS. But they did release various episodes. In North America, they were released by Family Home Entertainment. They released 12 numbered volumes on VHS and Betamax from 84 to 86. It was a real mix of season one episodes. If you owned a Laserdisc player, in 1991, Arise, Serpentor, Arise, a miniseries that features the creation of Serpentor as a villain, was released on Laserdisc. It is the only G.I. Joe release in Laserdisc, so if you are a Laserdisc collector, you might want to check that out. Rhino Home Video would later get the home video rights to the series and released it under their Kid Rhino branding releasing nine volumes between 1999 and 2000, each with two episodes. I can't stress enough what a pain it was to get TV shows, especially kid ones, when things were on VHS. It was all done seemingly randomly. They would release something with three episodes, and then the very next one would have one episode in it. 
it could be very frustrating if you were a collector and you often just went to a flea market to see if anybody was selling something that people taped off the TV. It was often easier. There would be DVD releases of G.I. Joe of various qualities. Probably the best released version was in 2009, which was done by Shout Factory. They released a 17-disc box set containing all 95 episodes and a lot of bonus features, including toy commercials and a 60-page book. And if you are interested in watching G.I. Joe, there are streaming services. You can find it online. Often things are uploaded to YouTube. Hasbro has a channel. So if you are interested in watching G.I. Joe in all its many forms and don't have a way of playing physical media, there's lots of options for you. G.I. Joe the Animated Series was special in many ways. Notably, to fans of the show who liked the toys and the comics, it allowed you to continue to live and inhabit the G.I. Joe world even when your friends weren't around, or say you've exhausted that one comic book after reading it a dozen times. I was obsessed with G.I. Joe for many years, and I can't tell if it was because I had so much access to it, or if the access to all of the different media just fed my passion for it. Whatever the case, this cartoon and watching it was a great treat for me. I would run home after school to watch it, and when I had a VCR, I would tape it, and I would re-watch it again and again. The first two series have really good production value, really creative people coming up with really unusual ideas, and then a murderer's row of voice talent bringing life to these characters. There have been G.I. Joe movies since then, live action, and I've watched them all. But to me, when I'm looking for G.I. Joe entertainment on screen, the first two seasons by Sunbow are what I go back to time and again. So if you're interested in G.I. Joe, please check them out. They are the best of what you're going to get. And now you know. And knowing's half the battle. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top 5 list. If you like top 5 lists, you should follow Metagirl on Twitter. She's at Metagirl. That's M-E-T-A-G-R-R-L. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show through reviews. If you haven't taken the time, please drop by wherever you download the show. And if they have the ability to give it a review, please give it a high review. It helps other people find the show. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters. You're all incredible people. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon, you can drop by patreon.com slash retroist. There you'll get access to bonus tracks and member-only episodes, as well as the Retroist Discord, which for a fact is the greatest retro community currently available on the internet. I'd like to thank Patreon members Eric Escott and Paul Hagstrom. You are both wonderful people, and I'm really glad to have you aboard. If you like what you hear on the Retroist, I also have a newsletter. It's called The Act of Discovery, and I often talk about some of the tangents that I find out while I'm doing research for my shows and posts on the site. If you'd like to subscribe to that, you can go to newsletter.retroist.com. It's weekly, and I've been told it's fun to read. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend.
I think if I had a G.I. Joe code name, it would be Flop Sweat. This has been a retro production. Goodbye.